So we are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and Sasta Paris is just one week away. I cannot wait for it. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, you can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It would be great to see you there. However, to our episode today, and what an incredible operator we have in the hot seat today, as I'm thrilled to welcome Amit Bendoff, founder and CEO at Gong.io, the startup that provides you with powerful visibility into your customer conversations with conversation intelligence. To date, Amit has raised $68 million in funding for Gong from the likes of Norwest, Battery Ventures, Cisco Investments, and Wing Venture Capital, just to name a few. As for Amit, prior to founding Gong, Amit was the CEO at SciSense, a business intelligence software that enables business users to connect to multiple databases of any size. Before that, Amit was the CMO at Panaya, helping companies that use SAP or Oracle to reduce 80% of their ERP upgrade. And finally, before that, Amit was the founder and CEO at Spark This, an outsourced marketing and sales service for cloud companies. And I do want to say a huge thank you to Ryan at Sprouts social for the fantastic intro to Amit today. I really do so appreciate that, my friend. But before we dive into the episode today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies including Envision, Cruise, Kayak, and DigitalOcean are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience, and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data, and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity, and turnover. And best yet, listeners of SASTA Podcast get three months of Sapling free whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows, or if you're just wishing you had one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash SASTA to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash SASTA and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation, connectivity and talent insights powered through Sapling today. And last but not least, Every week, we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is for all SaaS founders to know that they're not alone. This is a super hard thing that we are all doing every day, and there are some very cool communities like Saster and Medium in which many founders share their journeys, good and bad. We all hear about the massive financing rounds and the large M&A deals, but we need more founders to step up and candidly share their stories so that we can all learn from each other. Absolutely love that, Tyler. And getting help from peers means help finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. But enough of me droning on, and so now I'm very excited to hand over to Amit Bendov founder and CEO at gong.io. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Amit, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Ryan Barretto at Sprout Social for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Amit. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all, but I would love to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and what was really the genesis with Gong and what was that aha moment? 
That's kind of a long story, but I started my career actually in sales. I was selling audio equipment to recording studio and professional rigs. Uh, so a lot of what we're seeing in Gong actually has its origins in the 90s. And I kind of made like a turn to computer science. I was fascinated by uh, computer and software and had a short stint actually developing writing codes. Gong is my fourth company in the leadership position. I've been the founding team member of Click Software that brought it from zero to an IPO that was traditional enterprise software product. And then I was CMO and VP of sales at a company called Panaya in a pretty SaaS space, which are my first SaaS company. Then I was a CEO at a company called Sysense out of New York City that is in a business intelligence space. And that's where I pretty much had the idea for Gong. All the companies were growing super fast and all was well, but I was frustrated by the limited information that we're getting from our systems. As, as soon as a company starts to grow, we're losing touch with what's really going on. When you start, when you have a couple of salespeople, then you know exactly what's going on and you know you, you know every customer you understand every bits and pieces but as soon as you start to scale you're being fed by reports from the customer facing people whether it's in customer success or in sales and the way that CRM was built it's nothing like that is like flawed with any specific CRM but it was built like 30 years ago that the customer facing people are having conversation with customers they're sending emails they're meeting they're having phone calls and then they put very little information into the CRM 95% of the information never makes it there and the other 5% is lost and obviously is highly subjective. So as an example, if someone who put there is a field that's pretty popular that's called lost reason. Why did we lose the deal? Have you seen it before? I have uh, indeed. You know it. Everybody. So nobody has, and it has like a thick leaks, like no budget, no decision, like competitive better, unqualified, whatever. But nobody has things like I wasn't in the zone or I didn't do a good job uncovering the value. So that's why it's like highly subjective and can't blame the sales and customer success people. I mean, there's nothing in it for them. I mean, they hate putting data in and sometimes just misinterpret it. It's, it's not for them. So I was thinking, is there a system out there that can really give me the data and can answer some basic questions, not by hearsay, but directly? Why are some people more successful than others in either sales or customer service? Why are we losing the majority of our deals? Like everybody loses like four out of five or sometimes nine out of 10, right? So what happens with the other nine? And three, what's our competitive situation in the market? I mean, you can't blame it all on the salespeople, right? Is the product competitive? Who is like eating our lunch from a competitor? What do customers like about our competitors? What do they like about us? So I was just looking for a system that would give me all that information and I couldn't find it. And that was the genesis of Gong. I mean, I love that as the genesis of Gong and kind of that real idea validation stage for you and really at the very kind of gestation period. Idea validation is always an incredibly tough one. And so let's put ourselves in a hypothetical situation. So I'm an early stage founder with an idea for a SaaS company. Okay, I'm it. Picture that. I know it's a stretch from today, but what can I do to validate my idea? And, and how can I assess ahead of time the likeliness of this potential idea becoming a hit? So I'll tell you what we did at Gong and this is like, could be like anything. So obviously... I wasn't even looking to build something, but I thought, you know, there's nothing out there that, you know, we could realistically use. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we build a system that would do it automatically, right? Mm -hmm. But the risk that you're running into is first that this is not a great idea. And the second, which is more typical, that you're one of the few people in the world that thinks that it's a good idea or willing to pay the amount it will take to create a viable business. So let's say that I 
want to create like a new razor blade using like slick technology that is a hundred times smoother. There are never any nicks and you don't need a shaving cream to shave. Isn't that a great idea? Amazing. So let's say now that I do some math and it will cost, this thing will need to sell for like a couple thousand dollars. Then how many people in the world would be willing to pay this kind of money so you can build a viable business? That's the question. So most companies don't succeed, not necessarily because they don't have a great idea, but because there aren't enough people in the world that are willing to buy or are willing to pay what they need to get paid to build a viable business. So what we did at Gong, and we did two things. First, we validated the market. So I called 50 people, most of them people that I don't know that aren't going to be nice to me. They aren't going to tell me what I want to hear. And we told them, listen, we're looking to build a system that will automatically glean information from conversations and kind of shine a light on everything that's going on with your customer-facing teams. How much would you be willing to pay? What concerns do you have? What would make you not buy these? And that was like super valuable. So first thing is everybody says, yeah, I mean, that's going to be amazing, but it sounds too good to be true. Will it actually work? And too good to be true is actually a very good signal. It means that people like see the value, but it's a hard problem. So that's a good place to be in. And the second, you know, we asked them, how much would you be willing to pay? Everybody said, okay, $50 a month. It's half the sales force. It's not exactly what we wanted to hear, but it was like good enough to start a business. And that was like pretty anonymous. So we, at least there are 50 people in the world that are willing to buy. I mean, that still doesn't promise that it's going to be a success. I mean, there is a validation down the road, but that was the initial thing before we had anything. We didn't have a product. We didn't have a demo. Uh, we didn't even know what the product is going to look like. We just validated the concept. Can I ask, in terms of that pricing question to those potential customers, did the predictions that they gave in terms of what they were willing to pay, did that transpire to be true? And is that actually quite similar to your pricing today? Or did you find that actually there was a lot more scope on the upper end than people actually thought because they've seen the product now and they've seen it in use? So people pay more. And I kind of knew that when you ask people how much they're willing to pay, it's always less than what they're really willing to, especially when they see the product and when you have a lot more behind you. But that was like good enough. And ultimately you want to charge like substantially more, but that was good enough. I said, even with that, you know, we can almost build a viable business. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I do want to get onto pricing because it's one of my absolute passion points. One of the many reasons I'm still single, Amit. But before we dive into pricing itself, say we take this idea and we run with it. In the early stages, it's just not quite hitting. A big question that founders often ask me is, how do you think about the balance between vision and mission, but then also realistically assessing when something's just not working? How do you assess that balance? You got to sell. When I try to sell something early on, I'm not saying, okay, this is like AI that will change your life and make this a better world. People don't understand that. You need to bring it down to something like super tangible and down to earth so people understand what the product does. So don't confuse what you're pitching to VCs with actual buyers. With buyers, you need to sell a product that solves a problem. What's the problem you're solving and how does the product solve it? Just bring it like completely down to earth. You may hate it, but I mean, that's what actually works. It's super interesting to hear that's what works because actually it goes contra a lot of other previous guests on the show who said that when you're selling to big enterprises, you have to sell them the vision of what the product will be in five years time. Would you actually disagree with that and say, no, 
it's about the tangible today and you've got to show what works and what's real. There's nothing wrong. I think with large enterprises, it is good to share your long-term vision. It is a long-term relationship and that's, that's part of it. But it's hard to sell just on a vision. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, it's harder. You got to understand what the product does today. And then in addition on top, say, oh, by the way, next year it's going to do A and in two years it's going to do B. And that you could share that vision. Yeah, absolutely. And nothing like stoking the flames of excitement within them. So now we've assessed the idea though, and we're feeling very confident that it has legs and it's going to be a success. We mentioned pricing. And so I do want to deep dive on that, so to speak. First, most often say just to get the users on the platform, get some data back and get some product feedback. People release the product obviously for free, as you know. How does one know when's the right time to start charging on it? We charge very early and that would be my recommendation. I know there are some people that are successful with the freemium model. It depends where your audience are, but for us, it wasn't the money. So first we reached out to a dozen friends and family companies. Hey, can you start using the product? Just was like early. We didn't even have a product, but just to test it and develop it. But very quickly, we saw that they're pretty engaged with the product. And then we said, okay, let's do a trial close. A trial close is a technique in sales that if you want to know where you stand, you just go and ask for money. You ask for the order and that gives you like a very good indication where you are. And if you get a no, then you understand what's missing. You don't necessarily expect to sell, but it's a good test to understand if, if you're ready, if the customer is ready, if you're ready. And when we saw that the engagement with the product was pretty good, we said, let's do a trial close. Let's see what happens. And we reached out to everybody says, hey, beta is over, time to pay. And to our surprise, everybody said yes. So it's not always like that. And again, it wasn't like the money that we wanted. We didn't need the money. We were pretty well funded, but we wanted to know, again, what would people be willing to pay? And if they weren't willing, what are we missing either in our story or in the product that we need to fix to get people to buy? So that was like early knowledge that is super important. Just know where you are and uh, what you're missing and by charging and it shouldn't be cheap. So you know, think what you want to get paid ultimately and try to get that. And if, if you get a no, understand why. No, I totally get you on the context of understanding why. So now we want to charge. We want to charge early. Let's take that mindset. But we've got to think about the pricing mechanism behind it. Obviously, kind of variable pricing mechanisms are relatively the de facto today. But I always struggle with them in the way that they can disincentivize users to really use the products with it being seats or usage charges. Can I ask, how do you think about these variable pricing mechanisms? And how do you determine the right one for you? So early on, it, it was a question that we have. I still have the deck from the uh, pre-seed area. And, and we're asking like pricing, should it be by usage or, or by users? And both of them are viable. For our business, we do have real costs. So every minute of conversation we record and process or email has like a not negligible cost. So we do mind our margins and processing costs. So for us, the easiest thing would be to charge by the minute. But we thought that that's kind of hard for buyers because they don't know what to expect. It's, I mean, they're used to paying per user. So there are a few vectors of innovation in every startup, right? First, what the product does, what the, what do you fit in? And we chose to minimize the innovation vector. So we didn't want to introduce a revolutionary product with revolutionary pricing. So we knew that people are used to pay for most of their CRM licenses by users. So we made it pretty simple. We weren't optimizing for prices. We're in uncharted water. We're creating a new category. And for us, it was like market share and creating a new space as quickly as we can. And it doesn't matter if the pricing is like 10 or 20% better one way or another. We still haven't optimized for pricing. 
totally get you. Do, do, so would you agree then with Jason Lemkin? Because Jason said to me the other day, it's okay to leave money on the table in the early days. But then we have uh, oracles of industry like Mark Andreessen saying, whatever you do, raise prices. How do you think about the balance of those two opinions? I don't think that they contradict. You can raise prices and still leave 20%. So I, I agree with both. And I told you, we charge early and it wasn't like cheap. It was like more than what people were telling us that they're willing to pay in the validation phase. And again, because we wanted to know what it is and we later on, we even raised prices. That said, we're not optimizing. It's like, you know, we don't have pricing levels still, even though it makes sense. I mean, we might introduce this, but we haven't bothered with it so much. So the idea, I think that Andreessen um, is, is talking about is this difference of like, you know, 10,000, 100,000 or a million, right? But there's no difference between like 100,000 and 80,000. That doesn't matter. So I think they're, they're both right. No, I do get you in terms of the scales of pricing they're talking about there. I think one interesting thing to touch on is where you sit in the market, be it enterprise or SMB. How does thinking on pricing, both size and mechanism, really change when considering enterprise versus SMB in your mind, Amit? I mean, it varies. I mean, that's, uh, I know, maybe not a great answer, but it depends on the products. But, you know, if I want to generalize, generally enterprises are much larger deals. You need to make sure that you're speaking with a buyer that can authorize these kind of purchases. I know it varies if you sell to IT or business users, if your product is kind of like a grassroots or top-down sales motion. But I don't know that I have anything that is like uh, generically, but uh, you, you could, for SMBs, usually most SaaS product would be in the thousands or sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. And, and enterprises, most of them would get to hundreds of thousands, you know, six and, and seven figures. But there, there are exceptions to all of these. You said about kind of who you sell to within the enterprise there. It's funny, I spoke to a VC the other day and he said, oh, enterprise pricing, such long sales cycles. And then he said, and then there's no man's land in the middle, which is just horrible too. And then SMBs, oh, tiny ticket sizes and they will go out of business, which led me to be a little bit confused about what did excite him. But how would you respond to this thinking in terms of actually where inherent opportunity lies in pricing? Well, pricing is just part of that. You need to understand if you're an SMB business, you will have high churn, relatively speaking, no matter how good you are, because just it's the nature of the business. Some of them die. Some of them go get acquired. Some of them just lose people. So that, I mean, it's also a possibility with large enterprises, but much less so. SMBs, higher churn, usually lower acquisition costs. Make sure that your support model can support scales. And it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to build like a very large business out of SMBs. I mean, some companies have done that very successfully, but the thing is you need to get a lot of customers to get beyond like $20, $30 million in ARR. You need to start bringing like a lot of deals and both the product and the market needs to support this kind of sales, almost no touch, no support, sales motion, and the product has to be there. So that's hard. Enterprise is much more difficult because there are longer sales cycles. So it takes more time to understand what works and what doesn't. You know, usually like any anywhere between six to 12 months, sometimes even longer. But once you get it right, you could grow pretty fast. I'm sorry, I do have to touch on two elements that are just too intriguing there. One, you said about SMBs and the customer acquisition cost obviously being lower. What do you think about the right payback period for SMBs, which really would look good and excite you? Is that six months? Is that 12 months? What's good to you? I think six to 12 months is, is pretty good. And again, it depends on the churn. So what you need to look at is the lifetime value of a customer divided by your 
customer acquisition cost. I mean, that's the real thing. So payback within 12 months is pretty good. Six months is even better. Yeah, no, I do get you. And then on the enterprise pricing, you said about knowing when you get it right. How do you know when you've got that enterprise sales motion right? What does that look like? That you have a predictable model and repeatable model. It means when you hire new people and the ramp up time is predictable and you know what their KPIs are going to look like, how much you're paying them, how much they're achieving in sales, how quickly do they get it and what kind of marketing and, and support infrastructure you need to do them. And if you could just scale and add more people and more marketing dollars and get more business, then you know that it's working. But usually when you have like about a handful of people that are successful on your team that are not you and not the VP of sales, then I would say that it could feel comfortable to have a repeatable model. Yeah, no, I do get you on that kind of repeatability with new reps. I do want to drill down one layer deeper into the actual contracts themselves, maybe in terms of what causes them to succeed and maybe what doesn't. A lot of founders often ask me whether they do monthly pricing or annual pricing. When founders ask you this, Ahmed, what advice do you give them and how do you tell them they should think about this monthly versus annual? The nice thing about monthly is that it makes it easy to buy. The not so nice thing about it is that it makes it easy to buy. Remember, pricing is not just about the money. It's about knowing your value. So when you're selling in monthly, oftentimes you're not really selling because it's very easy for someone to make a decision, but it's also very easy for them to leave. So when you ask, let's say if you're charging $100 a month or or let's say $1,000 a month, that's one decision. Everybody, oh, you know, let's try this new project management software, right? Let's see what it works. And then after a couple of months, oh, you know, never mind. But if they need to pay, let's say $12,000, it's a larger commitment. It's a much more deliberate effort and you need to involve other people in the company and they're more likely to be serious about it, to actually use the software. I mean, it's not guaranteed. People still churn even with annual subscription, but I'm in favor of trying the annual. I mean, that's what I've done. And most, especially if you sell to enterprises, most of them do not want to pay monthly. I mean, they don't want to deal with invoicing and just deal with it. It's just annual commitment, sometimes even longer term. Yeah, I do agree with you, especially on enterprise favor, the annual. Uh, can I ask, in terms of like multi-year deals, taking annual one step further, I had a guest on the show that said multi-year deals maybe aren't all they seem. If they're not paid up front, they're just really passing renewal from CS to accounting. How do you think about the benefits of multi-year and whether that's fair that maybe they're not all they're cracked up to be? I mean, that's a topic for a podcast in itself. There are pros and cons. Let me try to go through some of them. Multi-year could be beneficial if people pay up front and you're bootstrapping or optimized for cash flow. That could be uh, substantial. Just make sure when you build your financial planning that you aren't getting this cash in year two and year three. So you need to know. Sometimes people make that mistake and think, oh, tell me this error next year it's 20 million and then they don't get the cash in year two. I do agree that the value, if it's not paid up front, is pretty limited. I mean, it's better than not having it, but it's not as solid as not having because if a customer doesn't pay, I wouldn't recommend, you know, you wouldn't take them to court. I mean, then it goes to legal and something, you know, we never want to find ourselves in a situation where someone doesn't want to use the product, let them go. And the third, maybe a little more controversial, but what you're, especially if you're new, you're losing very important learning by doing multi-year contracts. So if a customer have to renew every year, this really keeps you on your toes. And if there's a problem, you'll know pretty early you need to fix it, specifically the churn. And if you do a three-year contract, that kind of tends to hide the problem away. So if you're in early stage, there is value in doing shorter-term contracts just to, again, make sure that you're good enough that people actually renew. And then the fourth thing, I think that multi-year contracts are overly discount.
discounted. Sometimes people get like 15 or 20% discount. If your renewal rate is good, I mean, if you have a healthy business and your renewal rate is good, then a multi-year contract just financially isn't worth a 20% discount. If your churn is high, then that's a different story. But I mean, that's a bigger problem. We don't do a lot of multi-year contracts. I mean, sometimes we do, but a lot. Listen, I think it's a podcast series to come. Amit's multi-year contract podcast. It's going to be the new <laughs> hit. I do want to finish this day, Amit, with a quick fire round. So it's my favorite of any element of the show. So I say a statement and you give me your thoughts in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to roll? Oh my God. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> and this was actually from uh, our friends at Norwest. What okay. sales productivity technologies are going to be the winners in what is now a crowded space? First, I hate to contradict. I don't think it's a crowded space. If you look at those architecture diagrams for marketing, there are a hundred times more marketing automation technologies than there are in sales. Sales, they're maybe like a hundred. In marketing, they're thousands. So I don't think it's overly crowded, but I think there are like system of records or a system of workflows or things of current hottest technology, things that automate a lot of processes. And that's what most of the SaaS product, the system that are trending right now are system of intelligence that can drive it to the next level. Instead of having people operating, have the software automatically do a lot of uh, what people are doing manually, even with workflow uh, systems. Tell me, what's the hardest element of your role today? Uh, time. But uh, really, you know, the CEO project responsibilities are three, maybe four, right? It's like vision, uh, cash, people, and culture. So just finding the time to do all of them, you need to hire pretty aggressively at the pace that we're growing. Make sure that we have enough quality time to think about the strategic direction of the company and make sure that everybody is, is aligned. Cash isn't like a huge problem for us. I mean, we're very responsible financially and we have plenty of, of funding, but uh, mostly between people and direction of the company and finding time to all of that, uh, not to mention having a life. No, I totally agree with the last one there. Tell me, I had Lars Nilsson on the show and he said SDRs are the most important function in the sales org. Agree or disagree and why? Uh, disagree. I love Lars and SDRs are super important, but so is everything so my approach is like every function in the company is super important and without one piece not working and, and you don't have a great business so i want the sdrs to be amazing the sales customer success product finance marketing that's how i view it but i totally understand where it's coming from and it's hard to disagree with this point can i ask what's the hardest role to hire for today do you think product and product marketing those are the hardest role because you need people that combine multiple abilities and skills and disciplines and to find people that are fantastic. I mean, that's the hardest. Now, I hope I'm not getting in trouble with other people. Oh, sales is the hardest and all of that. I mean, everything is hard, but I think these are the hardest things of pivotal roles in a company. Don't worry, Amit. This is a conversation between you and I. No worries. Tell me, penultimate one. Tell me a moment in your life that's maybe changed the way you think today. Oh, there are quite a few, but um, I'll give you like a good one and a not so good one. So I went through like two downturns, 2000 and 2008. And I know that there is cycles in business and you have to think about it, not just drink your own cola at the time, just work pretty aggressively, but also responsibly and make just make sure that you understand that sometimes the market changes and, and be prepared. I've seen like large offices that are totally empty with new furniture and everything. And that's a devastating view. 
the other side of it, you know, what goes down comes up eventually. So when you go through difficult time, not necessarily a market downturn, but every company faces bumps and slumps, just hang out there. I mean, you'll be okay. Just stamina, resolve and hard work and then you can turn it around. Final one here, Ahmed. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Gong? I don't have anything like I've pretty much, I don't know if we've been lucky or smart or whatever, but everything that we've thought early on is like pretty much as we believed. I don't know that we knew what we were thinking at the time, but it turns out to be true and that the reality is actually even better. So if I knew how good it's going to be, maybe I could have done a few things a little faster. There aren't a lot. Let, let, let's change that one. Okay. So if you were to advise a graduate coming out of university, what would you most advise them today? So first, if you want to start a company, if you want to be an entrepreneur, just make sure you're doing it for a right. This is hard work. I mean, it's pretty rewarding, but it's not necessarily for everyone. It's a pretty tough work. You can enjoy it, but it can also torment your soul sometimes. So it's not necessarily for everybody. And before you embark on something, just validate your concept. Make sure that you're not the only one that is excited that there are enough buyers that are willing to start your business because most of the technology startups are going to waste because of that problem. That there aren't enough people that are willing to buy. No, I couldn't agree with you more there on the focus on customer validation. I do want to say that a huge thank you, Amit. As I said, I had so many great things, both from Ryan and the team at Norwest. So thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a fantastic guest, and I couldn't be more excited for the future ahead with Gong, and if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Instagram at hdubbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies, including Envision, Cruise, Kayak, and DigitalOcean are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience, and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data, and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity, and turnover. And best yet, listeners of Sasta Podcast get three months of sampling free whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows, or if you're just wishing you had one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash Sasta to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash Sasta and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation, connectivity, and talent insights powered through Sapling today. And last but not least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is for all SaaS founders to know that they're not alone. This is a super hard thing that 
we are all doing every day. And there are some very cool communities like Saster and Medium in which many founders share their journeys, good and bad. We all hear about the massive financing rounds and the large M&A deals, but we need more founders to step up and candidly share their stories so that we can all learn from each other. Absolutely love that, Tyler. And getting help from peers means help finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payments solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, I really do so appreciate your support and I can't wait to bring you a phenomenal episode next week.